Chapter 4 of The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury by Julia Cartwright. Chapter 4 Compton to Shalford. Following the Pilgrim's Way along the southern slopes of the Hogsback, we cross Puttenham Heath and reach the pretty little village of Compton. Here, nestling under the downs, a few hundred yards from the track, is a beautiful old twelfth-century church, which was there before the days of St. Thomas. This ancient structure, dedicated to St. Nicholas, still retains some good stained glass and boasts a unique feature in the shape of a double-storied chancel. The east end of the church is crossed by a low semicircular arch enriched with Norman zigzag moulding and surmounted by a rude screen which is said to be the oldest piece of woodwork in England. Both the upper and the lower sanctuaries have piscinas and there is an early English one in the south aisle. The massive bases of the chalk pillars, the altar tomb north of the chancel, probably an eastern sepulchre, and a hagioscope now blocked up, all deserve attention, as well as the fine Jacobean pulpit and chancel screen, which is now placed under the tower arch. A mile to the west of this singularly interesting church is Loosely, the historic mansion of the Moore and Molyneux family. This manor was crown property in the reign of Edward the Confessor, and is described in Domesday Book as the property of the Norman, Roger de Montgomery, Earl of Shrewsbury, on whom it was bestowed by the Conqueror. After passing through many hands, it was finally bought from the Earl of Gloucester, early in the 16th century, by Sir Christopher Moore, whose son, Sir William, built the present mansion. The grand old house, with its grey stone gables and mullioned windows, is a perfect specimen of Elizabethan architecture. The broad grass terrace along the edge of the moat, the yew hedges with their glossy hues of green and purple, the old-fashioned borders full of bright flowers, and the low pigeon-houses standing at each angle, all remain as they were in the reign of James I, and agree well with Lord Bacon's idea of what a pleasance ought to be. Within, the walls are wainscoted with oak panelling throughout, and the ceilings and mantelpieces are richly decorated. The cross and mulberry tree of the moors, with their mottoes, may still be seen in the stained glass oriel of the great hall and on the cornices of the drawing-room. Here too is a fine mantelpiece, carved in white chalk, which is said to have been designed by Hans Holbein. Many are the royal visitors who have left memorials of their presence at Loosley. Queen Elizabeth had an especial affection for the place, and was here three times. The cushioned seats of two gilt chairs were worked by her needle, and there is a painted panel bearing the quaint device of a flower-pot with the red and white roses of York and Lancaster, and the fleur-de-lis, with the words Rosa Electa and Felicior Fenice a pretty conceit which would not fail to find favour in the eyes of the Virgin Queen. The hall contains portraits of James I and his wife Anne of Denmark, 
painted by Mitens in honour of a visit which they paid to Loosely in the first year of this monarch's reign, and the ceiling of His Majesty's bedroom is elaborately patterned over with stucco reliefs of Tudor roses and lilies and thistles. A likeness of Anne Boleyn and several fine portraits of members of the Moore family also adorn the walls, and there is a beautiful little picture of the boy king, Edward the Sixth, wearing an embroidered crimson doublet and jewelled cap and feather, painted by some clever pupil of Holbein in 1547. This portrait was sent in 1890 to the Tudor exhibition, which also contained many historical documents relating to different personages of this royal line, preserved among the loosely manuscripts. There are warrants signed by Edward VI, the Lord Protector, by Queen Elizabeth and the Lord of her Council, including Hatton, the Lord Chancellor, Cecil, Lord Burley, Lord Effingham and Lord Derby. There is one of 1540, signed by Henry VIII, commanding Christopher Moore, Sheriff of the County of Sussex, to deliver certain goods forfeited to the Crown to Catherine Howard, one of our Queen's maidens, and another, signed by Elizabeth in the first year of her reign, commanding William Moore to raise and equip 100 able men for the defence of England against foreign invasion. There is also a curious sumptuary proclamation by Queen Elizabeth respecting the dress and ornaments of women and, what is still more rare and interesting, a warrant from Lady Jane Grey dated July the 19th, I, Jane, and signed Jane the Queen. Among the more private and personal papers is an amusing letter from Robert Horne, Bishop of Winchester, giving Mr Moore of Loosely advice as to stocking the new pond with the best kind of carp. These be of a little head, broadside and not long, such as be great-headed and long, made after the fashion of a herring, are not good, neither will ever be. Another from Bishop Day informs Sir William Moore, in 1596, that he intends to fish the little pond at Frensham, while one to the same gentleman, from Alexander Nowell, Dean of St Paul's, thanks him for his exertions to recover a stolen nag on his behalf. The treasures of Loosely, in fact, are as inexhaustible as its beauty. A pleasant walk through the forest trees and grassy glades of the park leads us back to Compton Village and the green lanes through which the Pilgrim's Way now wanders. Skirting the grounds of Monk's Hatch, with their pine groves and rose gardens lying under the chalk hanger, the old road passes close to Limnalees, the Surrey home of George Frederick Watts. Today thousands of pilgrims from all parts of the world seek out this sylvan retreat where the great master spent his last years and visit the treasures of art which adorn its galleries and the fair chapel and cloister that mark the painter's grave. From Compton, a path known as Sandy Lane leads over the hill past Brayburf Manor and the site of the old roadside shrine of Littleton Cross and comes out on the open down close to the chapel of St Catherine. This now ruined shrine, which stands on a steep bank near the road, was rebuilt on the site of a still older one in 1317 by Richard de Wancy, rector of St Nicholas, Guildford, 
and was much frequented by pilgrims to Canterbury. So valuable were the revenues derived by the parson from their offerings that the original grant made to Richard de Wancey was disputed, and for some years the rector of St. Mary stepped into his rights. But in 1329 the rector of St. Nicholas succeeded in ousting his rival, and the chapel was re-consecrated and attached to the parish of St. Nicholas. An old legend ascribes the building of this shrine and of the chapel on St. Martha's Hill to two giant sisters of primeval days, who raised the walls with their own hands and flung their enormous hammer backwards and forwards from one hill to the other. Unlike its more fortunate sister shrine, St. Catherine's Chapel has long been roofless and dismantled, but it still forms a very picturesque object in the landscape, and the pointed arches of its broken windows frame in lovely views of the green meadows of the winding way, with the castle and churches of Guildford at our feet, and the hills and commons stretching far away to the blue ridge of Hindhead. The ancient city of Guildford owes its name and much of its historic renown to its situation on the chief ford of the River Way, which here makes a break in the ridge of chalk downs running across Surrey. Guildford is mentioned in his will by King Alfred, who left it to his nephew, Ethelwold, and became memorable as the spot where another Alfred, the son of Nut and Emma, was treacherously seized and murdered by Earl Godwin, who, standing on the eastern slope of the hog's back above the city, bade the young prince look back and see how large a kingdom would be his. For seven centuries, from the days of the Saxon kings to those of the Stuarts, Guildford remained crown property, and the Norman keep which still towers grandly above the city was long a royal palace. The strength of the castle and importance of the position made it famous in the wars of the barons, and the Waverley analyst records its surrender to Louis the Eighth of France when he marched against King John from Sandwich Haven to Winchester. Today the picturesqueness of the streets, the gabled roofs and panelled houses, and even more the situation of the town in the heart of this fair district, attract many artists and make it a favourite centre for tourists. In medieval times, Guildford was a convenient halting place for pilgrims on their way from the south and west of England to the shrine of St. Thomas. Many of these, however, as the shrewd parson of St. Nicholas saw, when he thought it worth his while to buy the freehold of the site on which St. Catherine's Chapel stood, would push on and cross the river by the ferry at the foot of the hill, which still bears the name of the Pilgrim's Ferry. On landing, they found themselves in the parish of Shalford, in the meadows where the great fair was held each year in August. When the original charter was granted by King John, the fair took place in the churchyard, but soon the concourse of people became so great that it spread into the fields along the river and covered as much as 140 acres of ground. Shalford Fair seems, in fact, to have been the most important one in this part of Surrey, and no doubt owed its existence to the passage of the Canterbury Pilgrims. End of chapter 4